welcome to a new series of For the Love of Weather podcast. I can't believe we're on series five already. Thank you so much for listening. This is the podcast where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode and every episode you listen to loving the weather just a little bit more. I'm Gemma. Hello, I am meteorologist and weather presenter Ashling, and cannot also believe that we've managed to get to series five. Yay us. <laughs> and also all the people that are talking with us is just amazing. But today, another special guest and an incredible subject to, I don't even know how to get my head around it. So like, where, where's the top of it? Where's the bottom of it? I'm going to say the words polar vortex. What a cool word, just, you know, immortalized in the media over the last couple of years, but obviously has been around a lot longer than the media. Lots of experts in that field as well. And tonight we have Dr. Simon Lee. Simon, we're genuinely so grateful for you talking to us tonight. We know that you're a specialist. You also like to go viral on Twitter as well, which is really cool too. But also it just points out on those types of platforms how important it is when you are such a massive expert in your subject to be able to drill down and make one simple message that's going to like resonate with everybody. Dr. Simon Lee, though, is, gosh, your resume is absolutely massive. I'm like, where do I start? Where do I finish? I'll call out a couple of things, okay? And hopefully then the rest will be revealed in the podcast. Simon is currently a postdoctoral research scientist in the Department of Applied Physics and Applied Mathematics. Is it actually called APAM? It is called APAM. What a great name. at Columbia University in the city of New York, where he works on stratosphere-troposphere coupling. Crazy, 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 crazy stuff. Large-scale climate dynamics and variability and sub-seasonal to seasonal predictability and its applications. So Simon, I've just given a big massive blurb there, but take us right the way back. Where and when do you remember your first little spark of joy where you thought, I might do something in the weather. Well, first off, I want to say thank you for having me on. Um, it's always great to just talk about the weather. And sometimes when you have the job that I do, you don't actually spend that much time sometimes just talking about weather in a really kind of nicely enjoyable sense. You spend instead hours agonizing over, say, the specific way your figure is going to look in a journal article. And sometimes you can forget the kind of raw excitement of just having a good chit chat about the atmosphere. So very much a pleasure to to come on and talk about that Um, and thank you for the great introduction (laughs) so my interest in weather I can probably stem back to the very early 2000s so I grew up in Harrogate in North Yorkshire and Harrogate's near quite a few reservoirs uh, specifically those in the Washburn Valley And, and my family were always keen on going out and looking at the reservoirs and walking around them we did a lot of hiking at the weekends and I think I just became somewhat interested in watching the water levels go up and down and that obviously links to large scale weather features that bring about periods of intense rain or drought and so there was a natural interest there that went from reservoirs and dams and spillways and watching water rushing which is just fantastic and it always still excites me now to the atmospheric circulation and then somewhat in probably a fortuitous case in I think the BBC's 2002 series Wild Weather which was presented by Donald McIntyre first off that's a fantastic series and it's still in my opinion a really good education in in weather and that was very inspirational for me but in that episode, to dem- in one of the episodes to demonstrate the force of water, they actually went 
to Thrustcross Reservoir, which is one of the ones near Harrogate. And, and Donald McIntyre stood uh, at the bottom of the dam in the path of the water coming out of the sluice gates to prove that you can barely stand up in not that much water. And I remember watching that because it was like, oh, this is Thrustcross Reservoir. This is like near where we live. And if you're from a, a town, not a big city, you're not used to seeing the place that you live or the places that you know on TV. So that was that was really cool. But I watched that for the for the place and for the dam. But then that probably led me on to watching the whole series and thinking, wow, and the atmosphere is really interconnected. And I remember learning about great things like bomb balloons in, in the war that were set off by the Japanese making their way across the Pacific to North America and just thinking, wow, it's it's connected. And just thinking that was really amazing. And so I think if I'm remembering right, this is going back to when I was um, many feet shorter than I am now, which is a strange way of saying it, but there we go, um, that that is where my interest began. Just for the record, I think that is the best way of describing somewhere and in a time and a place that you don't remember, but it's a feeling. That's an awesome description. That's really amazing. That is amazing. So from a very young age, you sounded like there was already a little scientist brewing there if you were able to like interconnect all of that. And I guess if you're looking at water, you are looking at dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the, the, when we used to go on family beach holidays, I always used to kind of build lakes in on the beach build dams i'd find a stream or something and dam it so i was i was kind of maybe into fluid dynamics from a very young age i enjoyed watching all those things um take place and and so yeah i, I think there's that natural connection between water and between the atmosphere we see so many parallels between the two they are both fluids where did your interest in the stratosphere then come come into it actually yeah. and what is it What's the strategy? These are both very good questions. So this, so we find ourselves at the bottom of the troposphere, which is the lowest 10 to 15 kilometers of the atmosphere, uh, which is where kind of all the weather that you think about takes place, really, typical weather, clouds and such. It's where the moisture is. And then above that, in the second layer of Earth's atmosphere, but importantly, not the top layer of the atmosphere, is the stratosphere. And that goes from about 10 to 15 kilometers up to about 50 kilometers or so. And the stratosphere is really dry. And that's often been said as a joke because it literally contains very little water vapor, but also it's in theory less interesting. So you could argue that it's dry. Um, that's where you insert the sound of people laughing. Um, <laughs> we're laughing. We are, laughing. <laughs> we are we're actually laughing. laughing, but we were on mute there. <laughs> so, so um, it, it's, not, it, it's not the typical thing that people get interested in. Uh, but I was just interested in these big scale circulation features. And so actually in the winter time, the stratosphere is home to a very big scale circulation feature, which we alluded to earlier with it, the, the polar vortex, which is in the stratosphere in the winter. Um, and so this is this big circulation that goes around the wintertime pole and is kind of on, a, on this big planetary scale. And, and I won't fully define what it is and why it does, because I can feel that we're coming to that in a minute. But I got interested in this uh, probably around 2009, I think. Uh, there was an event called a sudden stratospheric warming, which is when, well, the stratosphere warms suddenly, but it's when this polar vortex breaks down in the middle of winter. And I remember hearing about this in, I think it was a Met Office press release. I think I'm remembering this right. And there was this diagram that kind of explained how this would influence the surface weather. And I just thought, wow, this is like a big, 
guide and it might bring snow. That was the that was the interesting thing. It was it was young me being excited about snow, really, uh, hearing about this sudden warming. And so, in amongst all these other things, I was interested in just the big scale circulation features. I just kind of got more and more interested in the stratosphere. It was kind of a new area of research as well with increasing computational power, meaning that forecast models could start to actually forecast what was going on in the stratosphere. And so the, the interest just kind of grew from there. And, and it's just, it's maybe some kind of large accident that that's where I find myself uh, researching, but it just stuck as the main interest for me. So you've already alluded to it a little bit, but our next question is, what is the polar vortex? <laughs> yes, so it was kind of hard to talk about how I got interested in it without talking about why it's interesting. <laughs> Um, so basically, in the in winter, the wintertime pole becomes a lot colder than the equator because it doesn't get any it doesn't get any sunshine to heat it up. So the air there becomes very cold and dense. And then essentially, what that means is that a strong jet stream forms in the stratosphere, blowing from west to east around this cold air, and that's that's something called thermal wind balance. It essentially means that if it's if it's colder toward the pole than it is near the equator, you end up with this westerly jet between the two. And so that's just really this the, the polar vortex. It's this big westerly jet circling around. Well, there's one in the Antarctic in their winter, but around the Arctic in winter um, that, that forms every winter. It's not, it's not unusual. And so one of the things that's unique about the Arctic vortex is that it's very variable because the Northern Hemisphere has got loads of land, mountains, land, sea temperature contrast, things that can generate big waves in the flow in the troposphere where we are, that can actually move upwards from the troposphere and into the stratosphere. And then if you try and picture this as like waves on a beach, they kind of just crash onto the edge of the polar vortex, like waves breaking on a beach. And they kind of bash this polar vortex around like it's a spinning top that's wobbling. And so the reason that that's interesting is because actually these fluctuations in the strength of the vortex in winter, one of which is called the sudden stratospheric warming, that's a particularly extreme case of this variability, can actually influence the types of big scale weather patterns that we have in the troposphere where we are and lead to things like snow in the UK sometimes, sometimes. Oh, you sound like such a forecaster. The probability <laughs> of sometimes. So uh, a couple of things, actually, I just wanted to pick up there right now. So you mentioned the stratosphere is really dry. So why is that important? Like what is an actual warming? What temperature range are you talking about? Just to put it into context, because down on the surface, you know, uh, oh, gosh, you're a northern boy from northern England. A cold mm. spell of weather would have to be probably a good few days below five degrees where we are a cold spell of weather is probably a good few days below you know 10 degrees and in in uh, celsius so uh, 50 in fahrenheit tell us more about the temperature up there why is it important how quickly does it warm do we know why it warms is it because it's dry so the, definitely the amount of moisture means that the the temperature the lack of moisture means the temperature can respond quite quickly I think the other thing to bear in mind is that because we're so high up in the atmosphere, the density of the air is much less. So the typical bottom at the bottom of the stratosphere, you're looking at uh, pressures like 200 millibars, as opposed to, say, a thousand millibars at the surface. And then we kind of think about the polar vortex mainly up at 10 millibars. 
So that's about 30 kilometers. So again, that, that's one hundredth of the uh, pressure at the surface. So this is, this is very low density air. But the temperature variability that we're talking about is huge. So in the most explosive southern stratospheric warmings, the temperature can rise by 50 to 60 Celsius in just a few days, which is kind of hard to comprehend if you think about the temperature of the surface. And that's partly because you have this very, very cold air which gets disrupted and displaced around uh, away from the pole, but also because what you essentially have is compression of the air. You have strong descent. And when you have that strong descent, the air warms uh, under compression. Um, so these are, these are really some of the, I, I would argue that the sudden stratospheric warming is the most extreme thing that happens regularly in Earth's atmosphere. And I sound biased when I say that because I've spent a lot of my life researching them. But I think on considering this is taking place on the scale of like continents, planetary scale, the, the, these events actually affect the circulation in the stratosphere all the way down to the equator. So you're talking about something that's affecting half a planet that's happening really like in, in a day or two days in, in these extreme cases. I think we're going to have to pitch you against uh, teleconnections and somebody who does Madame Julian oscillation or something. <laughs> no, but it is. I mean, when you actually when you actually put it into context like that, that what's happening up there is affecting so much further south. It's, it is actually pretty remarkable, particularly to, for the extreme weather that it can lead to. But you've mentioned a couple of times that, uh, you know, an extreme southern, southern stratospheric warming event was maybe 50 to 60 degrees. So bearing in mind the stratosphere, what's the normal temperature of the stratosphere, give or take? Well, in winter over the pole, you're looking at that temperature going from about minus 50 to zero, if not slightly above. So what other events happen up there? I'm only aware of, uh, you know, a sudden stratospheric warming event. What, what, what other type of things can happen? So not all that much happens in the stratosphere, really, which is partly why people joke that it's boring. It's, like, it's kind of in its mean state. It's in, on average, not much is happening. And then it can go to this huge extreme where it's like this, the biggest thing that happens in the atmosphere. And part of the reason for that is that the stratosphere is kind of slowly varying. The tropopause, which is the boundary between the troposphere and the stratosphere, and generally the sort of structure of the stratosphere as you move up through, filters out a lot of the kind of fast moving weather things that we think about, as well as all the moisture really that gets stuck in the troposphere below. So for the most part, the stratosphere is just slowly evolving. It slowly moves from the summertime where it's kind of warm and you don't have a polar vortex, then it slowly cools at radiative timescales into space. It just cools radiation away and you get a polar vortex. And that kind of wobbles around and it's this big thing. And then every now and again, it's just exploded. We have this explosive warming. And actually the, the first paper, the first observations of a sudden stratospheric warming were taken from radio sonde weather balloon launches over Germany uh, in 1952. And it was called the Berlin phenomenon. So it's 70 years ago today. And the, the paper, which is in German and therefore, which I haven't read because I know absolutely no German, uh, says describes them as explosive warmings in the wintertime stratosphere. 
because it was just kind of this, everybody had this conceptual model that the stratosphere is boring, nothing's happening there. And then suddenly they discovered these huge things where their, their balloon launches were just showing the temperature rocketing off. And if you imagine knowing that only, like in the, in the 1950s, only knowing that from weather balloon launches, not having these 3D computational models of the atmosphere, that must have been quite amazing to see. Do you know, it really is remarkable. And, and my God, science is just amazing how it's evolved. And also the programmers who program all of this stuff as well. I just, I think that's a whole other podcast, Gem. I've just, I completely agree with you. Same as well with the ozone hole that was discovered as well from just radio science. I mean, that is just incredible yeah. science, incredible scientific work. So I have another question for you, right? So my little spidey senses start going off when I see certain types of features or troughs or something coming through. And, you know, you just think to yourself, oh, I don't like the look of that or I don't think it's going to do that or I think that's going to cause me a problem today. What are your little your little red alerts that start going off in your head? And you're like, mm, like what date? What do you look at to try and predict when an SSW is warming? How do you? describe the confidence that you feel when you're talking about it and is it one of those things much like weather where you know it's going to happen uh, but you still don't really know until it's happened does that make sense so like you can see it on the radar you can project where you think that's going to go in the next five minutes but you don't actually really know until it's happened you know so tell it tell us all about that what are the things that you look at it's a really good way of putting it and I'm reminded of some recent sudden warmings in the stratosphere where you could see them in the forecast models, but then you knew it was going to happen uh, because you were already kind of, the stratosphere was already warming and the models were confident across different models that it was going to happen, but they couldn't, couldn't quite get the timing right. And so you were kind of being, it was like, I don't know, chasing, chasing a rat through the New York subway. That's on my mind because I saw a rat on the New York subway. Um, that you, you just could never catch it. And so it just kind of felt like, I guess the more glamorous way of describing it is chasing the end of a rainbow. That would be a nicer way of putting it. That you just, so, so you know it's happening, but you can't quite get the timing right. Generally, Southern stratospheric warmings are more predictable than day-to-day than -day weather features. And that's partly because of the scale that they have, but they typically have like kind of modern day models. Most of the time can get them between 10, and 15 days out, uh, the broad details of them. So they so they are quite quite a bit more predictable than um, say the specific timing of a weather front passing passing through or something like convective scale rain. Uh, but that's still less predictable than we'd like them to be. And so one of the things which forecasters and, and researchers do is try and look at the typical setup of the atmosphere that has typically in the past led to sudden warmings. And these can be things like blocking highs in certain parts of the northern hemisphere in the troposphere that can help amplify the amount of waves going up into the stratosphere that bash the vortex about. And you can also look at how the vortex itself is behaving um, and whether it's looking ready to, to, to fall apart. I think the easiest way of thinking about that is if you imagine an onion and you imagine that each of the waves that go up into the stratosphere during the winter sort of peel the onion and they peel away all that dead, non-edible stuff on the outside of an onion. And then eventually you're left with this really nice bit of onion. I feel like I've said the word onion a lot, but this is quite a nice way of thinking about it. 
that can then uh, that's then more susceptible to just getting chopped into maybe by the next the next wave that goes up. So it's very much a three dimensional thing, and and because there's forecast uncertainty in each component of that, it, that's part of why these things can be difficult to predict at, at really long lead times. I because because ideally it would be wonderful if we could get these things three four weeks out. Um, but it may not be perfectly possible, at least at current. So I have a question for you. Um, I was looking at some longer range output today. It was in some crazy diagrams, some incredibly clever person comes up with. But it looks like from about the middle of November, we've got this weird high pressure bias for what seems to be quite a decent spell into the future. Is that anything to do with you? So the to do with me, <laughs> creating a high pressure. <laughs> yes, um, the weather god. <laughs> so high pressure to the east of the UK over Scandinavia and out toward the Ural Mountains can be associated with helping to drive an increased amount of wave activity up into the stratosphere and help disrupt the vortex. But I think the, the important thing to remember there is that that is quite a common thing to happen. And so there's this two-way idea whereby you have all these waves going up, you have all these waves crashing on the beach, but that's fine. You know, everybody likes going to the beach and enjoying the waves crashing. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a wave so big that it will destroy the pier, if you'll let me have that analogy. So whilst we see these things in the troposphere and, and like these blocking eyes, and, and we might think, oh, that's, you know, we've seen that precede sudden warmings in the past. It's a, it becomes a little bit more complex. And I think early in the season, especially, you still tend to have a lot of dead layers of skin on the outside of that onion. Um, and so most of the sudden warmings we see actually tend to occur in January or February. So maybe not just yet. How often do sudden stratospheric warmings actually occur so actually surprisingly frequently in a sense uh, they happen on average six times per decade or slightly more than that which is about once every other winter which i actually think for the scale on which they're operating is actually quite common but the thing about them is that they can undergo periods where they're happening every winter or where they're absent for a long period of time or even very rarely they can happen twice in the same winter at the beginning and at the end and so kind of thinking about, well, we didn't have one last winter, so we'll have one this winter. It doesn't really work as, as simply as that, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it, about six times per decade. Could you give us like a lovely little quick rundown of, you know, the stats? Like, so you mentioned, you've quite mentioned a couple of times now, like on a planetary scale, how big the stratosphere is. But like, what are the actual numbers? Like, is it thousands of kilometers? So to give us a little a little hint of the 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 numbers you know and how far it is from the north pole to the equator so can you give us a little rundown of the stats of the actual size of the polar vortex um how big it is how wide it is how small you've seen it and how big you've seen it well to avoid sounding like a politician i actually don't feel like the specific numbers actually help people conceptualize this so i want to talk about it in terms of geographic quantities i make that argument simply because i think we hear big numbers a lot nowadays and and i i thought about this during during the covid pandemic but i actually felt like the numbers were the meaning of them was lost so um i think on a typical scale if you imagine the, the latitude of somewhere like the uk so about let's say 50 to 60 north 
And you can imagine that as sort of maybe where the edge of the vortex is, but that's right around the Northern Hemisphere. So around that sort of 50 to 60 North latitude band. So that that's that's huge, right? That's tens of thousands of kilometers. And in essence, it's broadly similar to that. It can, it can be smaller and shifted toward the pole. It can be slightly bigger, uh, especially early on in the season when it's got all those kind of dead layers of onion skin around the outside of it. But the processes that are involved in modulating the size of it, these big waves that are kind of crashing around the edge of it, mean that they kind of take up you know, most of the northern hemisphere from about 10 degrees north or so. So it, 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 in essence, it's half the size of the planet in, in scale, much bigger than the weather systems that you talk about on 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 the news in in essence and that we talk about in a day-to-day forecast sense which is actually Um, even more remarkable that you can gauge so much information from the limited amount of data particularly back when you said when it was discovered in the 50s so are your best friends still like for me seeing a radio sound is like a piece of gold dust what is what what's your version of that what do what can you see from satellites what can you see from the surface but ultimately is it that radio sound that you you desire so the the one of the sad things about the stratosphere is that because it doesn't have any water vapor in it you can't actually see it and so whilst tropospheric meteorologists get to look at satellite imagery and see their favorite things and whilst mesoscale meteorologists get to go and you know look at a tornado and and think about it people who research stratospheric variability have to rely on model model simulations that that ingest various data sources to get an idea of what's going on sadly radio sums are probably not the best thing for that because they typically burst due to the low pressure uh, in in the lower stratosphere and, and realistically they only start to tell you about the temperature profile because there's not much happening down there it's not like when you can look at a radio sun in the troposphere and go oh, wow like look at that deep layer of fog you know it's it's not quite as useful um and so really we're relying on observations from satellites to to get this full three-dimensional picture and then the way that's ingested into global forecast analysis systems to then have a representation of that on our computer screens crazy to think that all of this happens up up above us like it's when you talk about it you're just like it it's amazing and I, I mean I, I know we're biased anyway but yeah. it is amazing when you think about everything that's going on in the atmosphere above us it's just well we've touched a bit about what the polar vortex is the southern stratospheric warming how does that then filter down to affect our weather because a lot of people will probably think about polar vortex, SSWs. The first thing that will come to mind is beasts from the east. Um, so how does that translate down to our weather and what we experience? So the interesting thing is that the stratosphere's impact on the troposphere is actually largest in the North Atlantic. And so that's one of the reasons why people in the UK and in Europe get so interested in what the stratosphere is doing because we're on the receiving end of the North Atlantic variability. And so the the easiest way to think about it is to know that in the wintertime, the weather over Europe and the UK is largely governed by what the Atlantic jet stream is doing. 
And that forms along the boundary between warm and cold air and guides big Atlantic weather systems into, into Europe. And so when the polar vortex in the stratosphere is very cold and very strong, what you typically tend to see is that the jet stream in the Atlantic shifts further toward the pole. And that can mean that places like the northern part of the UK, Scandinavia, are very, very wet. It can mean that places like UK is very mild. So if you remember the December of 2015 is a good example. That was the warmest December on record for the UK. It was an exceptionally um, warm month. I believe it, temperature anomalies exceeded five Celsius in places on average. So if that was replicated in the summer, it would be you know, an incredible month. But it happened in December and it mostly just annoyed people because it was very unfestive and it actually caused some, I think it caused daffodils to come out in December in some places. It had some phenological impacts. But that was related to a very strong vortex, amongst other things, it was related to a strong vortex in the stratosphere. Uh, and so it was very, very mild in the UK. We had what's called a positive North Atlantic oscillation, describing this strong and, and poleward shifted jet stream. But we also had very large quantities of moisture uh, being driven up from the subtropics into, into the UK. And so places like um, Cumbria and Scotland ex experienced extreme rainfall, um, which was in part associated with atmospheric rivers, these really long filaments of, of intense water vapor transport from the subtropics. And so that's what typically happens when the vortex is strong. Note that when the vortex is strong and cold, that in, in places like Europe, it's typically warm. Whereas when the vortex is warm and weak, that jet stream in the troposphere and that storm track typically shifts much further south. And so instead of tracking into places like, uh, like Scotland and Scandinavia, we're instead looking at this jet stream moving into places like Portugal and Spain and the Mediterranean. And so they then get all this moisture, this warmth, these these Atlantic weather systems. And then we and Northwest Europe are left on the northern side of the jet in the colder air. And so this is when we can start to see things like an increased risk of heavy snow, or in the extreme case, what happened in 2018, which followed a sudden stratospheric warming, which was the beast from the east. And what I should point out amongst all of this is that those are the kind of mean or average or typical responses of our weather patterns to what's going on in the stratosphere. But they're by no means what you get every time. There's a lot of variability in there. Essentially, what you can think about it is you can imagine that the stratosphere is just pushing the tropospheric weather in a certain direction. But there are a lot of other things going on in the global atmospheric circulation, like even thunderstorms in the tropics. And so these can, these can um, constructively or destructively interfere with what's going on. Uh, and bring a variety of different weather patterns. It's really interesting. Your description there prompted me to remember a <laughs> surface pressure chart. My brain is very sad sometimes. And it wasn't Storm Des Desmond in 2015. Yeah. It was two days after it, but I remember the flooding being associated with it. And I remember the charts having this big, all I could think to myself is that is like back in the 90s, letting your jeans touch people used to have really long jeans and the water would just wake up the back of them and basically I, I am completely when you were describing that I was actually completely recalling all of the, the patterns I from around that time but hadn't fully uh, at the time equated it to the stratosphere you know I knew there was a different weather pattern out there but not necessarily thinking of a weak 
um, polar vortex. Well, strong, strong in that. Strong, case. strong polar vortex. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, that that was a a very good example of of a, of a month with a very strong vortex, and I think the other recent uh, period of time with a very strong vortex was early 2020, which is a period of time that people don't remember very well because March kind of eradicated their memories of it. But it was uh, an exceptionally wet period of time. We had Storm Dennis, Storm Kira or Kiara uh, in, in the February. And that was associated with a, with a stratospheric vortex that was blowing, blowing quite literally the records away. It was exceptionally strong. Um, and so it was a really classic example uh, of, of what a strong vortex can do to the weather when it, when it strongly couples to the troposphere. And you can see the extremes that that can generate. What you had happening in February 2020 with the rain and the windstorms and the mild weather was what happened in February, March 2018 with the snow and the cold. And so you really get those examples that these uh, two extreme states up in the stratosphere can couple to extreme states in the troposphere. I think it's really important as well like what you mentioned to say that just because you've got a sudden stratospheric warming event doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to get heavy snow or the same situation that you had for the beast for the east for example one thing i'd quite like to know is what is your opinion on the term beast from the east i find it hilarious i can't believe that we now write science articles where we have to say the February, March 2018 European cold wave commonly referred to as the beast from the east. And primarily, I find it funny because the phrase existed before 2018. It was just that the 2018 event was kind of the first one to happen in the era of social media. So when people, and, and this is generally, I think, driven by weather enthusiasts, started talking about the beast from the east or the BFTE, um, it, it really caught on. And I... I find it really funny because I just can't take the phrase seriously. It did become a bit problematic perhaps in 2021 when there was another sudden stratospheric warming and there was a forecast of a cold easterly and it became kind of known in the media as the beast from the east too, like it was some kind of sequel. And there aren't like, there isn't a set number of beasts from the east. There isn't an objective definition of what point something becomes a, a beast. And, and so I don't know whether if we have the same thing again, is are people going to remember the two? So uh, is, is I do gonna... actually have a lot of opinion on this because oh. at the moment, <laughs> um, you know, media would be my main role. And I actually think that that type of communication is very important to if you're if you so if you watch any standard news package, any standard weather forecast, if you are lucky, you'll get one minute of something where you can give someone some information so if you can give them that information by referencing or saying it's not going to be like this you've sort of imprinted something quite complicated to a vast amount of people in a very short space of time and I actually feel the communication tool of that is very powerful and I agree with you there's definitely times where it gets a bit frustrating or annoying but I've always you know sort of take it on the chin and think okay but if you have heard me if you've heard me in these 10 seconds and you just like take take this away from it I I actually think that that's I don't know I feel like that's a really important thing in a busy world with busy lives 
and also knowing the structure and, and timing that you have to tell stories and what people are doing whilst you're telling them. Could be cooking the dinner, looking after the kids, something spilt over the dog, you know, the actual time that people sit down and listen to information and as we're consuming it and all sorts of different ways if they're even watching terrestrial maybe they're watching you know social media I feel if you can deliver that which you know why is why your two tweets I think were so important you somehow managed to take all of that information make it so small that people were able to consume it I think it's a really important skill and reference to have and I feel it will also become quite important going forward for climate change for me, it has been a, f- a fantastic communication tool when something does have that label. Absolutely. I get frustrated sometimes, but but also things that stick in people's minds. If you can use that as your pin, you know, your boomerang, whether you're saying it's like this or it's not like this. And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm all for it. As for storm naming, you know, I think even just saying to somebody, I, I think so for a storm this season, storm Anthony, just saying storm Anthony just means something now, you know, so, you know, I don't know. I, I <laughs> maybe perhaps I'm an outlier, but as a communication tool, I think it's fantastic. I, I do. I agree with, with that. I think that's a really important point. I, I think I don't mind the term beast in the East because it's not scientifically wrong. It's not miss. It's not portraying anything incorrectly. It's just a name for a cold easterly wind. And it sounds funny because it was just made up because it rhymes more than anything. Um, so I so I don't mind that, and and I think you're right. It's a useful way of of conveying it, even if like to me, I had to kind of rename the beast from the east in my head because to me it was an event in 2013. To people older than older than me, um, it was an event in January 1987. Uh, that was the the real beast from the east. It put the 2018 event to shame. Uh, so I think I think that is important, and I think that that is that is useful. Uh, and I am much the same as storm storm naming. We were able to say storm Desmond, and we all knew what we were talking about. If it wasn't for storm naming, we'd have said, "Do you remember that weather event in December 2015?" Where and it would have got confusing. And um, so, whilst there are problems with everything, I think they're both good. They're both good. Yeah, big, and also, but also for me, a big thing that I'm very much. Uh, love is just empowering people to learn and it's a lovely way to offer up science uh, to people who may never normally touch off it just because something has a funny name and I just that in itself think it's fantastic that people might know that that's something to do with the stratosphere like I just I really like it you know that's that's all they took home and then everybody's learned a bit of science you know I mean it's great anything to get people talking about the weather yeah. I'm all for it yeah me too yeah. Um, Right. We should move on to the get to know me round. Let's do it. Let's do it. I did think that as we were starting a new series, I should have thought of some more weird or wonderful questions, but I haven't. They're the same ones as from before. So sorry. So we always start this round with what is your favourite season? That's a very good question. It's a very difficult question. Um, At the moment in New York City, I'm going to say autumn. so, uh, but I wouldn't say that in the UK, but I'm saying it here. Why not in the UK? The UK autumn can be lovely. It's my favourite season. I, I think the key, <laughs> the key word there was can. That was true. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite nice at the moment. Loads of leaves everywhere. It's lovely. No, we had a weird, so obviously we had this, you know, insane heat, you know, this summer, uh, loads of trees died, but actually a little while ago there, there's a little woodland area I like to walk in 
I swear everything came back to life again. So the leaves are only coming off now where I am. It's the first of November. I think otherwise, not, not to drag this answer out too much, I think otherwise my favourite season, if you just want three months, isn't doesn't sadly it doesn't line up with a season. If I'm thinking about the UK's weather, it's April to June. I always think that but those three months are just, they're just the best. That is possibly the best answer we have had yet. And I completely know why. And I should have thought of that because that's exactly what I love as well. Snow, spring, summer change light all in those three months god everything clever answer that's a good answer yeah that's a good answer do you have a favorite cloud Ooh, um i've I've got i've got a thing for cirrocumulus um i always think that's just really interesting to look at uh, but I but I really want to say uh noctilucent clouds because they're in the stratosphere well they're not in the stratosphere they're in the mesosphere um, but as a middle atmosphere cloud and, and as a rare but beautiful cloud, um, these these clouds that uh, basically appear to glow in the dark in high latitude, mid to high latitude, summertime, um, that are Earth's highest clouds. I just think they're mysterious and kind of just just fascinating and really cool. They are. And actually, the cirrocumulus cloud, not to be underestimated, it's... You know, you've got some lively conditions to get some cirrocumulus up there. What about the nacreous cloud? Is that the stratosphere as well? Yeah, that, that's where my slip of the tongue came from. Uh, nacreous clouds are also known as polar stratospheric clouds. And they're actually the, they're the surfaces upon which ozone depletion is catalyzed. They form at exceptionally low temperatures inside the polar vortex, which is uh, what you get in Antarctica inside the Antarctic vortex. And that's why... Uh, Antarctica is where we see the ozone hole. I realise that's something we didn't cover, but there we go. That is so interesting what you just said there, Gemma. We're going to have to clip that one up. <laughs> Do you know what it was? I had an I had a question that was about Antarctica. I'm semi obsessed with Antarctica. I'm not going to lie. The best um, people are. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have to get you on for another podcast and we just talk about Antarctica because I could talk about Antarctica all day. <laughs> Jammy Dodgers or Jaffa cakes? Jammy Dodgers. How do you eat them? How do you eat them? Uh, with my hands. No, sorry. No, I mean, what's your technique? I, I've not thought about this. Uh, I just, I guess, is there a way that I should be eating them? So I have a technique. <laughs> so you've got like the biscuity bit on the outside. I'd like to work my way around the outside and save the little jammy bit for last. Ah, I think I did that when I was a kid, but now it's all about just, you know, consuming, consuming it. <laughs> I do that with Jaffa cakes as well, though. I leave the orange to the last, and then sometimes I'll eat the chocolate off of that, and then I'll eat the, the orange bit. I, I think I need to up my game here. <laughs> you do. <laughs> if you were fruit or vegetable, what would you be? Ooh. This is interesting because do I do I go for like my favorite fruit um, or do I try and work out what I would be if I was a fruit? Um, I really want to say pineapple, but I think that's just because I like pineapples. No you one's know, ever said that. No one's ever said that. But also what fascinates me is everybody has an answer. They identify with the fruit or a vegetable. That's why a pineapple? Why a pineapple? Yeah. Um, I felt like it was a less obvious choice, but I also just do really like pineapples um i guess once you like hack away at the skin there's such a treat waiting and you know, <laughs> waiting inside 
Well, maybe, maybe. Let's <laughs> just go with that. It's like the, the onions and the pineapple. The, the onion and the pineapple. <laughs> we're, we're imagining it. Or, or maybe maybe I'm just, you know, uh, balancing out my, my lack of hair with, like, the pineapple. Um, <laughs> so let's go for that. If you can invite one person to dinner, it can be anybody at all. It can be a fictional character, anyone from any historical time frame. Who would it be? Uh, so I, so today Bono of U2 released his memoir, which I just got a copy of. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say I'd invite Bono. Wow. He's had a mental life. And so his memoir, hopefully detailed. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, I think he'd be, I'd want someone who could out talk me. And I think Bono could do that. Although, yeah, you do just hear him talking though sometimes. You think, I just want to listen to you. You know, you just feel like he's got a lot of very deep things to say. Yeah, he seems to have thought about a lot of things. Yeah. Okay, I've got three more questions. So two are weather related. One is the most random question that we ask everyone. So first of all, sunset or sunrise? Sunset. I'm going to say I, I sunrise you know you just you just mentally more there aren't you what sunset or sunrise sunset so you're an evening person or a night person well it's more that I'm just more often awake at that time of day yeah see I'm I sunrise I'm all about the my best work gets done before before 12 o'clock after that it's all downhill for me sunrise I only see sunrises on night shifts or if I'm getting know, up so, early yeah. to go to a shift. So I I'm a sunset I'm, person. I'm probably also a bit biased. So I live on the west side of Manhattan, so I can see the sunset, but I can't see the sunrise. And I think the sunset over New Jersey is much better than sunrise over the Bronx. Sorry, Bronx. Oh. Um, so. so have you have you got that? Um, there's like a point, is it coming up soon, where in New York, where there's two buildings... It's in the summer, Manhattan Henge. You can yeah. see I do. I will talk with my hands a lot. <laughs> I know you yeah. that the Manhattan Henge, when is that? Uh, I think I, it's in July usually or in June. Oh, okay. okay. Summertime thing. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I saw it this year on 42nd Street near Times Square and it was, it was amazing. But what was kind of more surreal was just the sheer number of people all taking a photo of the same thing at the same time. It was like being in Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you do sometimes have to just, you know, give yourself a clock on the head and just, like, be in the moment, don't you? Yeah, it was this beautiful, natural, like, cosmic alignment of human construction and, like, earth and sun, and it just kind of, the number of, the, it was all condensed into a smartphone experience. And yeah. It just made me pause for thought. I'm trying to do that more in that taking more time to look at it before I take the photo because my natural thing is just to get my phone and take a photo or my camera and I'm trying to be like appreciate it and then take the photo which is hard it's hard because you naturally just go to the phone you're like no stop mental photo first and then take the actual photo yeah absolutely I I think we all run the risk of remembering the photo more than what we saw with our own eyes and I'm trying to not do that. Mm. Likewise. Yeah. Yeah. We should all try and do that a bit more, I think. Mm. Um, Okay. Our most random of questions, fingers for toes or toes for fingers? (laughs) That truly is a random question. 
fingers for toes or toes for fingers and fingers for toes yeah it's the only way to go really well we've only had one no, person say it the we, other way around yeah a builder told us <laughs> like because yeah, he said then he could because he's always on his feet all day so then he would get a break for his feet it's all perspective isn't it well, that was a good point good old dog the builder and our final question we can't uh, let you leave the podcast without asking you is one thing that you wish everybody knew about the weather that's a very very good question i think the one thing i wish every excuse the motorbike um the one thing i wish everybody knew is that it, I, I, well, let me try and describe it maybe. It, I wish people kind of comprehended the sheer difficulty and the sheer effort and difficulty of producing a weather forecast. Just the, the scale of what's going on, the amount of data synthesis from around the world, putting that in a, a numerical weather prediction model that can accurately represent what's going on uh, and then running that out. And also the fact that this then runs into kind of natural predictability limits, like the idea that we can't give you a day-to-day, hour-to-hour weather forecast four weeks from now. It's just not possible. There's a limit on that. I wish people grasped that. I wish people grasped that being able to accurately forecast the weather is not some amazing, some easy, trivial thing that we should just be able to do. It's a, a tremendous human achievement that deserves more credit than getting someone on the moon, in my opinion. I feel like that deserves clap. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and everyone's said, here, here, every forecast right there, scientists, climate scientists is like, hi. <laughs> yeah, I, it's just, you know, that, that's that's the thing that, that I, that's the thing that, that the yeah. one thing that I think is so, my, that, that all scientists and everyone involved with weather and climate science day to day or in research and operations all knows and all appreciates and is all is humbled by but you know you, you, the people don't necessarily appreciate and 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 so that the fact that that's such an incredible human achievement and that we've done it so quickly mm-hmm. the, the, the pace you know from going from even when even when i was a kid the sort of forecast we were getting um to, to kind of having these hour by hour app forecasts on our phones, yeah. huge huge change even in even in my lifetime. Let alone, I know. Uh, I sometimes feel like you know we should be running that all the time in the news, and you're like, I have got one minute fifteen seconds to talk about the next three and a half days in some useful way. <laughs> it's really really hard, <laughs> really hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and and you know, hat, hats go off to people who can give condensed explanations for things oh my god oh, we're just all trying scientists don't we you just can't help it you just um and the thing is that's the thing about science isn't it as well like so you look at the stratosphere but throughout most of this conversation you have been talking about your subject of choice indirectly and in different ways so sometimes things make sense from one point of view sometimes they make sense from another point of view and even to yourself, who's an expert in things, sometimes when you're looking at a set of information, just completely depends on, yeah, some days you need to look at it one way and some days you need to look at it another day. And some days the historical part of one of the pieces of data that you're looking at makes is more valid than another day. You know, it is 
incredibly complicated, lots of little cogs in the wheel. So Simon, thank you so much for everything that you've taught us today. Uh, we do like to leave everybody with a little weather wisdom, something maybe they didn't know, a little take home thought. So I thought seeing as you are our first guest that is so close to space, can you tell us where is outer space? So it's typically around 100 kilometers above the ground. And so if you think about where, the, where we are uh, and where the troposphere is, that's the bottom 10 to 15 kilometers of the atmosphere. And then the stratosphere is from about 15 kilometers up to 50 kilometers. And then you have to go that distance again. So whilst we like to say it's gone stratospheric or use stratospheric as an adjective to mean like way up there, there's actually more of the atmosphere beyond the stratosphere. You can get up into the mesosphere, thermosphere, exosphere. The stratosphere is not the top of the atmosphere. It's just the layer above um, where we are. It's only halfway up by the sounds of it. Well, the thing is that it's just the, the amount of mass that's in the atmosphere is just decaying the further up you get uh, exponentially. So um, most of the mass is, is down in the troposphere. Simon, thank you so much. Or should we call you Dr. Lee? Thank you so much ah, for talking Simon to us today. <laughs> We've learned so much, but I also now have a whole load of new questions. So you'll yeah, have to come back onto our podcast. Um, if you've listened to this podcast and you have enjoyed it, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate and review the podcast and share it with anyone that you would think that might not want to have a little listen. Um, you can follow us on Instagram. We are for the love of weather. We are on Twitter where we are the number four love of weather. Um, and if Simon, people want to come and follow some of your work, where can they find you? So I generally go under Simon Lee WX on any social media platform, except for the ones for which I consider myself too old. <laughs> There's to. none. <laughs> that doesn't exist. No, no ma mainly, mainly Twitter is where you can find me, Simon Lee WX. Yeah, Your Twitter feed is excellent. I would recommend awesome. going to there. Highly recommend if you have any sort of an inkling or a sniff in the interest of weather, which hopefully you do if you're listening to this podcast, check out Simon's Twitter feed. It's a lovely way to consume information. But as always, and really nice to be back at season five, we just hope that you leave this episode, Loving the Weather, that little bit more. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.